This is the most important election in the history of our country. United, we can and will overcome this season of darkness in America. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the SIPS podcast series, What's at Stake for the World? Global Perspectives on the U.S. Elections. My name is Ryan Katz-Rosine, and I'm your host for this episode, which focuses on climate change. We have, as I'm sure our guests will attest, two presidential candidates who couldn't be more diametrically opposed on this issue. From Donald Trump, who's withdrawn the U.S. from the Paris Agreement, and who's famously referred to global warming as a quote-unquote hoax invented by the Chinese, to Joe Biden, who recently put forward a $2 trillion climate plan as part of his platform. And the stakes are very high, too. The world continues to warm, with 2020 set to be one of the warmest years on record globally. And the election season comes at a time when millions of Americans are dealing with the ravages of climate change from unprecedented wildfires on the West Coast to a similarly unprecedented wave of hurricanes and tropical storms in the Southeast, all while the global concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere continues to rise even during a global pandemic. So how fortunate we are to have two leading scholars of climate politics help us unpack this question of what's at stake. So joining me from the University of Toronto is Dr. Jessica Green, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science. And calling in from the University of California, Santa Barbara, is Dr. Matto Mildenberger, who's an Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science there. Welcome to both of you, and thanks for joining me on this conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. No worries. It's great to have you. So, Jessica, I wanted to uh, start off by getting a bit of an update on the situation going into the election. So I'm wondering if you can start off by just explaining what impact the Trump presidency has already had on global climate change governance over the last four years. And would you say it's fair that uh, we're likely to see more of the same approach over the next four years if he's reelected? Yeah, um, thanks. That's a super important question. And um, I will be happy to talk about um, what's going on in uh, global climate governance. Um, But of course, one of the things that happened with the Paris Agreement is that national policy on climate change has now become global policy on climate change. So uh, under the Paris Agreement, every country gets to essentially make its own pledge about what it's going to do to tackle climate change. I like to call this the choose your own adventure approach to climate governance. Um, And so the U.S. has said under Trump that it is pulling out of the Paris Agreement because we got a very unfair deal, whatever that means, um, because, of course, we made the deal. We we set our own um, our own pledge. So the idea that something was something terrible was acted upon us is it demonstrates a profound misunderstanding of how global climate governance works. So um, the other thing we know about the Paris Agreement is that it is woefully inadequate to tackle uh, the the goal set forth in the agreement, which is to limit uh, uh, warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And every year, UNEP, uh, the UN Environment Program, does a report called the Gap Report. And every year it shows how woefully inadequate all of the pledges are collectively in trying to meet that 1.5 degree target. So um, in, in a sense, then the US pulling out is, is not, uh, it, it's not the 
the be all end all for climate governance because we've recognized collectively that um, everybody has to do their part, right? It's not conditional cooperation. It's not, well, I will if you will. Uh, things have gotten so bad and so urgent that countries agree that they're going to do their part no matter what anyone else. Now, that said, the US is, um, uh, I guess, a, a declining hegemon in uh, the global political arena. And so it does matter what it does. Um, it is the largest historical emitter. It is the second largest current emitter of greenhouse gases. And so for uh, the US government to say we're not playing anymore is not, um, let's say it doesn't provide the much needed uh, enthusiasm or momentum uh, to propel the Paris Agreement towards more ambitious. So I think, you know, in all, it's, it's not great, but it's also, you know, very much expected. And uh, to answer the second part of your question, absolutely. Like when, as going forward, if, if um, heaven forbid, uh, Trump were to be reelected, you can expect the same abominable um, policies on climate change. Um, and I think, you know, Maddow is the expert here on domestic policies, but the litany of things that he has done to roll back regulation um, some of which are climate uh, relevant, some of which are just about things like not poisoning people um, is really quite horrible. And uh, unfortunately, I think we can expect more of that were Trump to be reelected. So that, that I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, not glad to hear about abominable policies and rolling back regulations, but um, it does kind of set up the, the next question that I wanted to ask you, which does sort of lead into this uh, domestic question. So um, as I think uh, most of the listeners will know, Trump has been you know, a pretty vocal supporter of uh, the fossil fuel sector and especially the coal industry. Uh, and coal, of course, is, a, is very carbon intensive. Um, but we also know that the, car, that, you know, the coal industry itself is not uh, seeing uh, the kind of resurgence that at least he was aiming for. Um, so I'm wondering if you can just share with us what are some of the, the forces that are keeping Trump's, um, you know, his, his fossil fuel friendly policies in check? You know, what is, what is uh, working against these quote unquote abominable policies or, or his uh, attempts to roll back the regulation? Well, unfortunately, I don't think there's a huge amount um, keeping him in check. I think there are, there are a couple of things. Um, one is the growing environmental justice movement and um, the extent to which environmental environmentalists have linked to justice and the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, I think has been really important in sort of growing the umbrella of people who care about climate change um, in the broadest sense, because they, they care about uh, climate equity. So I think that's one force. Um, a second force, I think, is um, the reality that some firms are reckoning with that we are moving towards a carbon constrained world. And so they're starting to make contingency plans. There's been a lot of coverage in the news recently about um, uh, Exxon being dropped from the New York Stock Exchange, or sorry, the, D, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, um, BP making big announcements about renewables. And so there's a lot of noise about the end of, um, the end of oil. Uh, I think that's a little bit optimistic, but I do think that um, fossil oil companies now see that they have to at least make some incremental improvements and pretend <laughs> that they are walking the walk 
And so I think that helps uh, in two ways. One, obviously it does make some reductions, although some of my research indicates it's not, it's not substantial. Um, but two, it indicates to government, um, and this is a sort of old story in political science and, and the business literature, that firms want regulatory certainty, right? They, want, they need to make capital investments, they need to make decisions um, in, you know, in the longer term, and so they need to know what kind of regulatory environment they should expect. And sometimes that helps uh, prime the pump for taking decisions about um, how, to, um, how to change regulations uh, in order to provide that certainty. Um, so I think those are two, uh, two mechanisms that are helping to sort of hold back the dam, but there are not a lot of them. I guess a third would be that, you know, we see increasingly that um, people care about climate change and they're worried about it. Um, as Matto can tell you, that doesn't necessarily translate to uh, voting or um, other preferences for stronger environmental regulations. Sometimes it does. Um, but definitely, you know, climate is now on very much on the pu uh, public agenda. Yeah, and th that's a very interesting point, uh, especially what you we were mentioning about regulatory certainty. And I think we've seen a little bit about uh, of that in a Canadian context, too, in, in the oil sand sometimes. Uh, We've heard of, of the, the oil majors asking for you know, either taxes or not, but you know, make the policy clear so that we can operate in this uh, more uh, certain market environment. Uh, but thank you for sharing that, uh, Jessica. I'm going to turn to you, Matto, and ask about um, uh, the other side of the coin. So uh, Joe Biden has released what many have called a pretty ambitious climate platform. So I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit more about what his platform involves and uh, what, what do you think of it? Sure, um, you know, and I think it's important to, to place Biden's climate commitments in, in context. Um, he, as a candidate, has evolved over the course of this primary um, and, uh, you know, his, his, some of his current climate-related commitments are quite ambitious. Um, and even when compared to some of the earliest interventions he made on climate during the primary season. Um, and, and I think that this is a, a testament to the growing power of the climate advocacy movement in the United States, um, groups like Sunrise, um, you know, sort of a really much more vibrant um, set of social activists who are engaged in bringing attention to this issue. Um, and it's also a testament to, to the degree um, that a number of presidential candidates, beginning with Jay Inslee and also Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, really pushed very ambitious, aggressive climate policies as part of their campaign. And, and I think the result is that the Democratic Party, for the first time, is really thinking about climate change solutions at the scale of the climate problem. Um, so Biden his current plan is uh, $2 trillion over four years, which is a very substantial investment. Um, and it's a different type of climate plan than we've seen in previous elections from, for instance, uh, President Obama in his two elections. And it's a plan which is less focused on carbon pricing, less focused on trying to make pollution more expensive, um, and more focused on, on, I guess, three planks, what we could call standards, investment, and justice. So the, the centerpiece in my mind of his plan is this target for a, a 2035 clean energy target for um, the electricity system, the energy system in the United States. 
Um, and, and that's actually a bit more ambitious than just cleaning up the US electricity mix um, because it's going to be um, dovetailed with uh, electrification of transportation, electrification of buildings, um, and even about half of the US heavy industry can be electrified. So uh, a 2035 clean energy target could really cover about 80% of all of the carbon pollution that's released here in the United States. That standard is sort of giving a vision of where Biden wants to take the country. Um, that's accompanied by a very strong in, uh, focus on investment and jobs creation. Uh, Biden is framing investment in green infrastructure and, and climate uh, mitigation as a, a way to support a, the economic recovery, the recovery from COVID. And that turns out to be a very popular and effective way to frame uh, climate change action here in the United States. And then I think the third thing that um, is notable about the Biden climate plan, and I think this um, is true of a number of policy areas right now in the United States, and I think it speaks to what Jess mentioned, that there's been a growing awareness of the links between environmental justice, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, and also um, climate issues, is that you know, both Biden and his vice presidential pick, uh, Kamala Harris, have consistently spoken and thought about and, and proposed policies around climate change that integrate uh, justice issues. You know, there's an awareness that um, the, the harms associated with climate change are being unevenly spread um, within and across different um, groups in US society. And we need to sort of remedy those injustices as part of any climate response plan, right, to make sure that uh, you know, the health and well-being of, of Black Americans or Latino Americans um, are not being compromised uh, at the, the expense of, of wealthier white Americans. So I think those three planks, um, sort of a focus on standards, setting a, a vision that is quite ambitious if met, um, a focus on using investment and spending and sort of providing benefits to build a political coalition, and really integrating issues of climate justice and environmental justice into the heart of US federal action. That, that creates a, a package that has, I think, surprised um, a lot of people, including people who are initially skeptical of some of Biden's early climate commitments. And, and I think really speaks to the degree to which the conversation on climate change has dramatically changed within the Democratic Party and the degree to which Biden has really embraced um, you know, the, the more ambitious efforts by other figures in the party to propose climate solutions that are really at the scale of the crisis and that could make a meaningful difference if enacted to, to protecting Americans. Well, thank you for that. There's a lot there. And uh, in a minute, you know, something you said may, um, reminds me of a moment in last night's debate. So for those listening, um, yesterday was the first uh, debate. Uh, presidential debate. And so there was a moment during that where they were talking about um, a Green New Deal and whether or not uh, Biden was a supporter of the Green New Deal. And there was a little, some confusing statements made about that. You support? No, I don't support the Green oh, New Deal. Oh, you don't? Oh, well, well that's a big statement. I support that means you the, just the radical left. I, su okay. I support oh, the don't. Biden plan. And I'm going to ask you about that in a minute because it, it uh, you know, the way you mentioned this, the way that, that, 
the plan is somewhat framed around green jobs, especially a, a recovery and economic recovery and this element of justice, like it does kind of speak to some of the elements of the Green New Deal. So I will ask you in a moment, but before I do, um, and, and that question is going to go to you as well, Jessica, but, but um, before I do, um, I wanted to ask just about the feasibility because, you know, to be fair, this is, this is a, a platform, right? Biden's uh, ambitious plan is nevertheless a plan. It's not necessarily, uh, we haven't seen it in action. So in the same way that there are some constraints that have worked against uh, Trump's uh, policies towards the energy sector, I'm wondering, you know, what kind of constraints you think might work against Biden's uh, climate ambitions if he does get elected and seeks to bring about this sort of comprehensive climate uh, mitigation strategy? Yeah, so I think I'd make a couple of points. Um, first, I'll just say that uh, Biden is running a more climate-centric campaign than we've ever seen at the presidential level by any candidate. And, and that includes candidates like John Kerry and Al Gore, who were the Democratic standard bearers and privately have been um, leading climate advocates within the party, but downplayed those commitments in the course of their presidential campaign. Um, so, you know, we've seen Biden clearly articulate that he sees there, uh, there being four linked crises that exist in the U.S. today, you know, racial injustice, economic um, collapse, the COVID pandemic, and the climate crisis. And he's, I think, effectively prosecuted the case that these need to be addressed and considered as a bundle. And so Biden has been elevating climate change as an issue within his own campaign, I think, in a way that will... Um, encourage or at least set the stage for Democrats if they take back the Senate, they keep the House and win the presidency to make a serious push on, on climate uh, legislation. I think there are a few constraints here. So one is that, um, as we saw during the Obama administration, there are real limits to what can be pursued without there being legislation passed um, in the United States. And I think that those limits are going to be um, amplified if uh, we see this 6-3 conservative majority in the Supreme Court that most people now expect with Republicans uh, rushing to confirm uh, Amy Coney Barrett. So it's very clear that there needs to be legislation uh, passed to implement and sort of set the agenda for this, uh, you know, these climate reforms. And it'll have to be designed in, in ways that are sensitive to the possibility that um, the courts may look at this type of legislation unfavorably um, providing a lot of, uh, for instance, specific guidelines to implementing agencies and not giving too much discretion to those agencies. Um, so, so we need to have a bill passed, and that means that we need to pass a bill in the Senate, which is likely to be the, the roadblock amongst all three um, parts of the U.S. political system. And, and frankly, that means that the filibuster in the Senate needs to go. Right. The, this this uh, notion that 60 votes would ever happen for a reasonable climate reform bill in the Senate, which is what the filibuster require, is, is sort of laughable. Um, a climate bill may pass with 51 or 52 votes, and that means that the Senate will have to be reformed to get rid of the filibuster. Um, that's something that a number of presidential candidates um, have pushed. It's something that Biden has signaled at least some openness to. And I think that in the context of the current Supreme Court debate, um, in the context of Republican opposition to Democratic reforms, that, you know, there is an above average chance that the Democrats will kill the filibuster. And that's going to be essential to, to taking Biden's commitments and making them actionable rather than unrealistic promises. Um, 
But, you know, I have some hope that in a world in which we have uh, the Democrats take control of the Senate, Biden wins the presidency, um, you know, we could really imagine a world in which actually this is quite realistic. Um, and certainly the, um, you know, the ambitious targets that Biden is proposing, for instance, this 2035 clean energy target, um, there are lots of energy and electricity and an economic model suggesting, you know, that's feasible. Um, a lot of money is going to have to be spent, but it's also going to create a lot of economic opportunities. It's going to be, um, you know, space for a lot of new jobs, but it's doable. Um, and I think with the filibuster gone, uh, you could also see that legislation passing. Cool. Uh, well, I really appreciate those insights on how I suppose we could say that the democratic structure in the U.S. can can kind of work as a constraint, but also, you know, the possibilities therein. Um, I did say I would turn to this, so so uh, maybe Jessica, if you want to uh, add in, what did you think of that moment in the debate when uh, the Green New Deal came up? Ugh. Well, I mean, <laughs> I was watching like when my you know peeking through my fingers plastered over my eyes. Um, you know, I I I guess that was not. I did not perceive that as awesome. I mean, I think you know, that was a very calculated move to say, you know, not associate, there was a lot of punching down on the left side of the, uh, of the party um, during the debate. And I did not think that was great. And I think that's part of what that was, you know, that, that Biden didn't want to be associated with the Green New Deal, because that's like eco crazies and AOC and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, so I, I wasn't too, too excited about that. I mean, and I, I want to react to a few things that Matto said, because I think there's, um, it was really a, a rich response. Sure. Um, I, I agree with him that um, Biden has had the most climate forward campaign uh, that we've seen, um, I, I should say, in the in the presidential race, because that's not certainly was not true in the primaries. Of course, um, yeah. But that is a very low bar. <laughs> Um, and so uh, I, I, you know, I get, you know, I, I get worried that we, we take, you know, and this is not a criticism of Matto because we're on the same page of a lot of, of things, but, you know, the, the news is so bleak that when we have little wins, we get excited about them. And, you know, I, I, just to, to juxtapose that with something, there was also um, a kerfuffle in, in August when the DNC refused to, um, I'm sorry, didn't refuse, removed a provision in his party platform that said that it was going to end subsidies um, for the fossil fuel, right? And that, that was, so that was just demonstrative. And that was just a platform. Like they didn't, nobody was going to really hold them to it. It's in some ways a lot of symbolic politics. And yet even in that realm, they couldn't commit to um, this really central part of decarbonizing. I mean, we cannot try and get rid of fossil fuels while we're still paying to, for this system to go. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, you know, and I credit to a huge amount, Jay Inslee and Bernie Sanders in pushing um, uh, Biden's campaign towards more climate action. Um, but I think, you know, we still have a ways to go. And I, I was heartened too about um, bundling crises. Um, I fear that in some ways, bundling the crises makes the political constituencies for action a lot broader, but also makes the, her the sort of bar for actually getting legislation, which as Matt pointed out is critical, also a lot higher. 
Hmm. Um, and so there, you know, if you want to talk about decarbonizing by, um, for example, implementing a universal basic income or, um, paying, uh, you know, buying out workers in the fossil fuel industry, right? I think that um, that would be great and that would build a huge constituency, but it would be very difficult to do legislative. And so I agree 100%. That's why the filibuster needs to go. And uh, as long as we're adding to the list of sort of radically rethinking how government works uh, in the United States, it also means statehood for Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. Um, probably a lot of other things, but uh, we need to really think about, um, I mean, the reality is that our, 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 our governing system is, is profoundly broken and getting some of these really radical reforms is going to require um, pretty dramatic changes to the way um, that the system works. Hmm. And Matto, any reflections on either what Jessica has just been talking about or, or on this question of how, how the issue of climate change came up during the, the debates and, and how that's shaping the, the direction of this discussion? Yeah, I, I largely agree with what, what Jess is saying. Um, you know, I, I think that Biden has gone to great pains to, to declare himself as not aligned with the Green New Deal. Um, but I, it often feels like a bit more of a symbolic defensive disavowal rather than a, a meaningful one. I, I think that there, I think I think that there's one serious difference between sort of the principles of the Green New Deal as its advocates initially proposed and what Biden is doing, and that's that the Green New Deal was very focused on creating a safety net and sort of restructuring American society to be more equal, to have um, you know more social and health and educational support, and to sort of use climate policy as a way to address some of these deeper systemic issues in U.S. society. Um, I, I think that the Biden version of the Green New Deal is a bit narrower in that it's focused more on um, economic opportunity and, you know, the, the transition and economic support structures that, are, that is part of the Biden plan are, you know, more focused on new jobs, including jobs for people in impacted sectors. And so, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of similarities in spirit in the sense that, um, you know, both the Biden plan and the original Green New Deal are offering a, a different type of approach to passing climate policy. You know, one that, that paints a picture of where we can be and sort of offers benefits and a positive vision to sort of generate a broad political coalition that supports action. Um, but, you know, I do think that the, the Biden plan is more focused on climate alone and very near bits of like the the u.s social system impacted by climate policy whereas you know the green new deal is originally advanced by by aoc and by markey and you know as um you know championed in the primary by bernie sanders um was sort of a more radical and more far-reaching effort to reimagine u.s society um, that said, you know, and, and I've done a bunch of research on this, trying to understand if the underlying logic of the Green New Deal um, pans out empirically. So does bundling these issues, does bundling COVID and climate, does bundling social justice and climate, economic reforms and climate, does that increase public support? And, and here, um, all of the empirical work I've done shows that the underlying logic of the Green New Deal is actually very sound you can increase and generate broader public support for COVID, for economic reforms by bundling it with climate change and vice versa. 
And I think that, that Biden's plan captures that spirit and pivots away from carbon pricing and pivots away from sort of taxation as the dominant way of addressing climate change. Um, I don't think he goes anywhere near as far as the advocates of the Green New Deal were proposing. Um, but his plan is an echo and, and a fairly clear echo at that, I think, of the, the Green New Deal intervention. And to the degree there was any confusion in the debate last night, I think it was simply Biden attempting to signal that he, he is on the same page as AOC, for instance, on many climate issues, um, but trying to avoid a soundbite that the Republicans would use to, to say that Biden wants to take away your hamburgers or right. whatever silly drivel um, has been dominating debate uh, over the Green New Deal. I 100% agree with that take. Um, I, I think the, the, the question, and by the way, um, Matos, that paper is fantastic. You should put a link to it in the, in the uh, description of the, of the pod. Um, we can do that. I, uh, it's a really good paper. Um, I 100% agree with what you're saying, Matto. I, I mean, I think the concern is, and this is a, just a sort of general uh, thing when we think about climate policy, um, in the States and elsewhere is, um, you know, we've tended historically to think about it as a technical problem, as a problem of pollution control, as a problem of um, developing new technologies and storage and things like that. But, you know, work that I do and Matto and others in our community do, do shows that this is profoundly a political problem, right? And so that decision about whether or not to associate with the Green New Deal, those three words was a political one and um, we just don't know if it was the right one or not. Yes. So I, I think that Jess and I are like often in total agreement here. And so I'm just <laughs> going to agree with her again. <laughs> He's but, but, yeah, but, but, but let me just add another thing. Um, and if there's something that gives me a bit more hope, it's that we're beginning to see the emergence of a real um, multi-generational, multi-racial, um, vibrant social movement around climate change. Agreed. Um, and, and to the degree that you know, the legislation that might pass in early 2021 if the Democrats win back the Senate. Um, I think the, the reason to be slightly more optimistic um, about how that legislation will pan out is that there will be a vibrant social movement pressuring and raising their voice and pushing um, elected officials to act in sort of the climate interests of the American public. And that's something we didn't see, for instance, in 2009 um, when there was the last window of climate policy making opportunity in the U.S. Well, I'm, I'm going to jump in there because we're, we're are getting a little bit short on time. And, um, you know, on this question of hope or despair, as we might put it, um, I wanted to share with you a, a quote by, uh, you know, world-renowned climate scientist Michael Mann uh, and see what you guys think of it uh, before we uh, wrap up this episode. Um, so earlier this year, he, he tweeted, uh, quote, a second Trump term is game over for the climate, really, exclamation. As political scientists who are studying climate change governance and, and climate policy, do you agree with that statement? And I'll start with uh, you, Jessica. Uh, <clears throat> no, I don't. I mean, I think, uh, I, first of all, I, I would say I can't. Because if that were the case and Trump were reelected, then I would just crawl in a hole. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. So that's, you know, that's one reason that uh, I don't agree with it. The other is that, you know, yes, there is a whole lot of warming that we've locked in. There is, um, you know, carbon is a stock pollutant and uh, we need to decrease our emissions as quickly as possible. 
But, you know, I think this feeds into the idea of the climate being a sort of binary issue or like waging the war on climate change. The reality is that climate change is here. And the question is, how are we going to manage it? Right. And so I think um, if Trump is reelected, then it makes the management problem more difficult, but it doesn't mean game. Over. What do you think, Meadow? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of agreement on your podcast today. <laughs> um, so, so I, I also think that um, both from a messaging standpoint, it, it's sort of a bad message um, to be communicating because it, it will move people from sort of denial to despair or demobilize them. Yeah. But, but I also just think it's, it's empirically not the right way to think about climate policy. Climate change is happening. Um, we're locking in a lot of hurt, you know, already, even if we stopped releasing any carbon pollution tomorrow globally, you know, the world that we're going to live in in 10 or 15 years is already going to look different. And what we're fighting over and fighting for is to save as much of the world as it exists today that we can. Um, you know, if, if, if Trump wins, that's going to lock in more damage. It's going to mean that, you know, the U.S.'s parts of the U.S. at least are not going to take serious action on climate change for another four years at least. And it's going to lock in more destruction it's going to mean we're going to save less of what we, we could have saved if we acted today. Um, but this isn't a fight that begins or ends in sort of any given moment. This is sort of a continual process that we're all going to be part of for, for decades. And there's always value in saving a little bit more of the world that we have. Um, and, you know, I think if, if Trump wins, it's going to be a permanent loss, an irreversible loss of, of so much of the planet that we care about. Um, but it's not a binary, right? The, this fight will go on no matter what happens, and, and it has to if we're going to have a planet that, that is recognizable or, or really supports the conditions for human life moving forward. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, thank you both for those, those uh, insights on that particular question. And, uh, you know, I think I may have seen a very similar uh, tweet by Michael Mann um, back in 2016, uh, but which which maybe is another way of saying, and, and it just kind of adds to the agreement here. Um, I don't know who it was, but they put it in a very interesting way that, you know, if we, you know, we're aiming for 1.5 degrees, or at least to keep it at 1.5 degrees, failing that we, you know, we, we try to keep it to two degrees. If we fail at that, we go for 2.1, then 2.2, we're going to keep fighting, right? We're going to keep uh, doing what we do um, until we get an effective climate agreement and we, we reach net zero and, and below. So um, maybe uh, that's another way of, of framing it. But, um, but yeah, once again, really appreciate uh, what you guys had to say and uh, appreciate sharing your expert analysis with, uh, with myself and with the listeners. So I want to remind any listeners out there uh, not to you know, forget about all the other great events that are being put together by SIPS. And uh, so check out the website. And you can also subscribe to the whole series of uh, SIPS podcasts, which are available uh, on the website as well. Uh, the entire series of, uh, of what's at stake for the U.S. election. And don't forget to follow SIPS on Twitter at UOttawaSIPS, uh, C-I-P-S. So if you're American, don't forget to vote. And for the rest of y'all, remember uh, to remind your American friends to vote. Uh, thank you both once again, and we'll uh, see you next time. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Thank you, guys. That was really a pro productive segment, wasn't it? <laughs> Keep yapping, man. The people understand you. <laughs> <laughs>